So it's hard to uh, to turn on TV currently without seeing reports about the impeachment trial, right? Um, pretty much wherever you turn, it's the topic of conversation. Everyone's very excited to uh, not not usually know your thoughts, but to express their thoughts on uh, on what should be happening or what has happened. And it's interesting to me. I, I find I find one of two reactions. I feel like most people either either are, are very glued in on it, like very focused, very trying to keep up on all the changes, trying to keep up on everything that's transpiring um, because it's significant. Right, and so 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 they stay on top of it, or 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 on the opposite extreme, we we back away from it, saying it's too overwhelming, it's too overwhelming. There's too much. There's too much. Infor- uh, they just want nothing to do with it, and so they, they they prefer instead to tune out. But but one of the things that becomes apparent, whether you're whether you're tuned out or incredibly tuned in, one of the things that becomes apparent is that our nation is divided. Our nation, the United States, is really more divided at this point as we look at the proceedings. And it's not just, it's not just that there's differences in opinion, right? It's not just that we have two parties that are coming together saying, okay, we see things differently. Maybe we can work on this. Maybe we can come to a common, to a united place. Rather, what we have is two parties that generally represent at least the extreme ends of the nation, the, that are warring with one another. And it's not, it's not done in kindness or humility or charity. Rather, it's usually done with name-calling, right? Name-calling and character assassination and, and opportunities to make fun so that whether you're on the news or whether you're on social media, it's hard to escape the banter back and forth between, between these two opposite ends of the spectrum. But again, the thing that becomes more and more apparent is that we are a nation that is currently divided politically, which is also ironic given that one of the main purposes of government originally, one of the main purposes of government is to actually unite and to actually bring together. And yet here we are at this day and age where government brings more division than anything. This morning, we're continuing on with our series through the letter of Philippians, through Paul's letter to the Philippians believers. This was written by Paul under arrest while he was in Rome to the Philippian church, a church that he had planted himself, a church of people that, had cons- that he had considerable care for, right? A community that brought him considerable joy because of their faithfulness to Christ. But even in their faithfulness, even in the midst of their faithfulness, they are not without their own issues, In previous weeks, we've been largely focusing upon Paul and Paul's situation, the hardships that he's been facing. But this week, our passage takes a turn rather to look at the situation of the Philippian believers. Where are they at? What exactly are they currently experiencing? And as we as we unpack this passage, one of the central themes that's going to become apparent, one of the things that's going to come up time and time again is specifically unity. It's unity. And the desire that God has for his people to be a united people, right? Especially, especially in our culture today, unity, unity stands out in stark contrast to the way the rest of our culture is acting, to the way the rest of our culture responds to one another. We are called to be different. We are called to be a people set apart, a people who are united. 
so that so 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 that when, when you're flipping through your stations and, and you see and you, you see the political banter going on back and forth, you're able to recognize, yes, that's important, but I have a different calling as well to be united together. Today we're going to look at Philippians chapter one. We're going to finish up chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, Philippians 1.27, and then we'll go through chapter four, or chapter 2, verse 4. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up, and we'll read this passage together. Philippians chapter 1, beginning verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have this time where we can just pour over it, Father, and to see what your will is for your people. God, I pray that you would speak to us afresh during this time. God, that your word would be powerful and effective, that it would take root in our hearts, God, and it would continue to transform us into the image and into the likeness of your Son. Father, please work powerfully. We need you. We need to hear from you. We need your spirit to make your word tangible to us this morning. Father, we pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. So our passage then begins this morning with verse 27, reading, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, again, Paul has been, in, Paul has been describing his situation in prison. He could potentially even be executed or he could be potentially released. But either way, and this is significant, either way is gain for him. Either way, he wins because of the gospel, right? Death, death means life with Christ, ultimately. It means being in his presence. It means rejoicing to be able to be with him. Life, however, would mean life lived for Christ, serving his body and the churches here in Philippians or in Philippi. And Paul's desire is that the Philippians believers would be that radically sold out for Christ. That when faced with the same, when faced with the same opposition, when faced with the same type of situation, they would respond in trust and enthusiasm that the gospel is more important than anything else. Paul begins in verse 27 by saying only. Now, this only is important. This only is important. Paul is highlighting one central thing that the Philippians 
And we need to hear this morning. Paul is shaking a finger of warning at them saying, remember just this one thing. Remember this one thing. He wants them to let your manner of life be worthy. Be worthy. Now, the Greek word behind manner of life, it's a political term that's rarely used in the New Testament. In fact, it's actually the very word that we get our word politics from. The CSB translates it as citizens live your life. I think that's a good translation or or, or that really kind of brings out some of this nuance. Or it could also just simply be translated as live as citizens. Now, that's noteworthy, especially for the Philippian believers, because the Philippians were a people that were very concerned about citizenship. They were a people that were very proud to be able to call themselves Roman citizens. Um, Philippi had been awarded one of the highest titles that a Roman province could possibly be awarded. They, they abided by Roman law. They used the Latin language. They actually tried to dress like Romans. Mind you, not all the people in the Roman Empire at that point in time were trying to dress like Romans. They did. In fact, my understanding is that, is that Philippi was actually laid out similarly to Rome. These are people who took pride in being Roman citizens. Um, interestingly enough, when Paul originally shared the gospel in Philippi back in Acts 16, he ended up beaten and in prison, right? He ended up beaten and in prison. But upon his release, he made it known to them that he was a Roman citizen. Now, when they found out he was a Roman citizen like them, all of a sudden the story very much changed. They were falling all over themselves to try to make amends, to try to make things right, because they feared beating a Roman citizen that much, right? But now Paul is encouraging them towards something else. Paul is encouraging them that, yes, you are Roman citizens, but you're actually citizens of something far more significant. You're citizens of the gospel. Your, your, your title of Roman citizenship, that's, that's weak and meager in comparison with being a citizen of the gospel. Later on in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul will go on to describe their citizenship as being actually with Christ in heaven. Right? That's, that's who they are. That's their primary identity now. And that citizenship certainly has certain expectations associated with it, just like any citizenship, right? If you wanted to naturalize, if you weren't from the United States, you wanted to naturalize and become an American citizen, there's certain tests, there's certain knowledge that you have to take to actually be a citizen. There's certain expectations on what you're supposed to know, on how the government works, on some of our history, some of our politics, and how that functions, right? There's certain expectations. And similarly... Being a citizen of the gospel has certain expectations as well. Paul has a number of things in mind when he states this, but our passage this morning focuses most specifically on his exhortation there at the end of verse 27, that you are standing in one spirit, in one spirit. Now, it was very typical in the ancient world, especially ancient Rome, the expectation that your citizens, part of being a citizen meant that you were united. As one ancient writer put it, that they would be of one concord, right? That they would be united. And Christian citizenship is no different on that front. There is a unity in the Christian body that is expected as citizens of the gospel. Um, that unity should be obvious. It should be obvious to those who are within 
But it should be also obvious to those who are outside of our walls, who are outside of our church. Partially because unity, again, stands in such contrast to the way the world works and to our flesh. That unity, then, is central. Unity is central for two different contexts. The first, the first context is unity is central for the midst, uh, for, for, for those who are in the midst of uh, external or outside opposition. Unity is essential for those who are in the midst of external or outside opposition. Remember, Paul, back in Acts 16, had faced opposition and persecution for his ministry in Philippi. So it's not surprising, then, that the Philippians also faced similar persecution, right? That that, that shouldn't have surprised anyone. Uh, But Paul reminds them of two things. He has two prescriptions in the face of external opposition to maintain their unity. The first is that they would be united in purpose. They were called to be united in purpose. They were to remember that they had one goal, one thing, one purpose that they were striving for. Paul states that they were to stand firm in verse 27 with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This striving side by side probably draws from a military context. It probably has a military background in mind. In mind, there was an expectation that the Philippians would fight side by side, protecting one another, and that they would be united in one mind. In one mind, meaning that there would be a singular purpose. There would be a singular purpose that would drive them. In this case, for the Christians, it was, it was their Christian faith. It was their Christian faith, and specifically that in opposition to their culture. The faith unites us. It drives us. It gives us reason for us to endure in the first place because the gospel is that precious. The gospel is that precious. It's worth it. Um, so this reminds me of a Roman testudo formation. So, so any of you who may be familiar with, uh, with Roman or, or Greek war movies, you've probably seen something like this in those movies. Um, it's actually a Roman invention. Um, testudo, um, the, the, the word actually means tortoise. It's actually Latin for tortoise, which looking at it, you can probably guess why it might be named after a turtle. Um, so, so it was, it was a typical, it was a typical military formation. And what they would do is the, the front line of soldiers, they would, they would gather together and put their shoulder, their swords at a certain height and get them nice up snug tight to one another, right? And then, and then the back line, the line immediately behind them, they would raise their, their shields up overhead. And then if there were multiple rows behind that, they would continue to do the same. Um, sometimes even the, the men who were on the flanks, the men who were on the ends, they would also turn their shield, their shield outward so that you would end up with a perfect, like, shell protecting, uh, protecting your troops from missile or from projectiles and from infantry. Right? So this was a strong formation. This would protect their people. In fact, it was said that the, that the top shield, the, the, the ceiling, the roof of it, um, it was so strong that a horse could actually walk across a well-formed Tortudo uh, um, formation. So, so that's the kind of strength that it had. However, that only works as long as your men are all fighting as one, Right? That only works as long as they're all united. As soon as, as soon as there's a break in the ranks, as soon as somebody, as soon as somebody bails out, as soon as somebody isn't united with the rest of the group, then all of them fall, right? Similar to what Benjamin Franklin said, we must hang together or we will hang apart. 
that was the that was the experience of them and that's certainly what we experience as Christians as well the purpose of what they were attempting to accomplish was essential right their purpose was essential for actually maintaining their unity together as a fighting formation we as Christians must continue to remember the purpose because the purpose is what drives us the purpose and the preciousness of the gospel in Christ the second facet to standing united is so that, so that they would be bold and unafraid in the midst of opposition. Interestingly, Paul gives us four reasons why the Philippian believers should not be gripped by fear. He gives us four reasons why the Philippian believers should not be gripped by fear here. The first, in verse 28, the Philippians' unity in faith is a clear sign of two things. It's a clear sign that their opponents have already lost and that the Philippians are already recipients of something that is far better than this life. Already the gospel has done a work in the Philippian believers and it's clear that the gospel is true. And if the gospel is true, then it is the only route for salvation. And if it's the only route for salvation, then those who reject and attack and attack the church and the gospel, they're condemned. It is a clear sign. The unity of the believers, the way they, the way they continued in the midst of opposition was a clear sign, both of their salvation, but of their opposition's condemnation, ultimately. And this wasn't a note of joy. This wasn't joyous for the Christians, but it was joyous that the gospel is true and effective and powerful. The gospel has already won, and that should inspire boldness in its people. That should inspire continued, continued faithfulness in the midst of opposition. The second come in, comes at the end of verse 28. The reason for the Philippians' confidence is also because of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Paul notes that even this, even this opposition that the, believer, um, that the believers in Philippi were facing is ultimately from God. This is ultimately from God. Paul here expresses a radical understanding that even hardships, even trials, all things ultimately come from God. He is over all things. He is in control and he has a purpose even for suffering. Third, just in case we missed the previous point, just in case that we missed the previous point, Paul takes it one step further in verse 29, where he tells us that not only is God sovereign over suffering, not only is he sovereign over it, but he actually calls suffering a gift. He actually calls it a gift. Reading from verse 29, for it has been granted to you. Granted. That word, the, the, that word is the same word that we get grace from. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, that's the first gift. So belief, faith, in and of itself is actually a gift from God, right? Not something that we can take pride in. Not something that, that, that we can be proud of ourselves about. It comes from God and it's a gift of his spirit. So not only that we should believe in him, but also that we should suffer for his sake. This is granted to us from God. This is a gift from God. Um. And if you're anything like my family, when we get gifts that we don't want, we typically gift them to someone else. We re-gift them, right? We, we, we put them away in our storage room and we wait till we have an unsuspecting victim and then we give it to them. <laughs> or we take it to the staff white elephant party, right? Not that I would do that to you staff, if any of you are in there. 
but, but this isn't something that we can simply re-gift, right? We, we, we don't turn around and give this to someone else. This is, this is a good gift from God. And we can only view suffering as a gift when we keep in mind that it comes from him who works all things together for good. Romans 8, 28, right? He works all things together. Suffering reminds us of what matters most. It causes us to place our hopes in God and not in our immediate circumstances. It drives us to the cross and to his future work of making all things new. And it intensifies our ability and opportunity to share the gospel. This doesn't mean that we should seek out suffering, certainly not. But it does mean that when suffering comes, it also contributes to our unity and to our boldness with the gospel. It sharpens us. It prepares us to be that much more precise and to be that much, that much, to be that much more mindful of the gospel. Acts 5.41, speaking about the apostles after they had been beaten by the Sanhedrin. Right? They, they, they had been beaten. They had been told not to share the gospel anymore. They were facing persecution. And, and, and as they left, as they left their beating, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's Acts 5.41. Finally, the Philippians can be bold because their suffering also aligned them with Paul and his own experience. Verse 30 showed that they share in the same sort of sufferings that Paul has had both in his time in Philippi and even now in Rome, right? They are aligned. They are not alone. And in fact, they have a very visible example from Paul of how God will use this, will use their trials for his glory. God was making his might and power known through the unity demonstrated in the Philippian church. He had done an inner work in them individually that brought a cohesiveness in the midst of their persecution. And Paul is exhorting them to maintain that unity, encouraging them to maintain it. I mean, imagine, if you will, you have a bag of marbles, right? When you pour out that bag of marbles, especially on a tile floor, right? When they hit the tile, what happens? They disperse. They go everywhere, right? Good, good luck trying to pick them all up. What about if you have a bag of magnets? What about if you have a bag of powerful magnets? You drop those on a tile floor. What happens? They stay together. They stay together because there is an internal cohesiveness to them that is far more powerful than being struck by a tile floor. That, that's the testimony of the Christian, of the Christian body in Philippi. That's, that should be our testimony, that there is something that is at work in us that is greater than being struck. And as the Philippians serve together with a common purpose in the face of opposition, that unity only continues to grow. So, so a question for each of you is, are you serving together? Are you serving together with other believers? Are you, are you pursuing this type of unity that we see, Right? Where, where, where are you serving with your brothers and sisters? Where is your Roman testudo formation where you are striving side by side with other believers, where you know that they have to have your back and you have to have theirs? There's no lack of opportunity at Lakes Free Church for service, right? There's opportunities all over the place. If you're struggling to think of something, I'll just point you in the direction of Kelly Brogan, right? She always has need for, uh, for, for those who are involved in children's ministry and in the Wednesday night program. I know that our ushers are always in need of those who are willing to serve alongside on Sunday mornings and helping to usher and helping to organize our, our motley crew of, uh, of congregants. 
Um, there are always opportunities. We even actually have a page on our website just for posting these opportunities to be able to serve. And this is a good and rich thing for us to be able to come together and to serve in something so great, right? This is a good thing. If you are not serving, I strongly encourage you. Maybe even the first step is simply, if you're new to Lakes Free, maybe the first step is just getting involved with an ABF on Sunday morning, getting involved in one of those groups, and then eventually asking those leaders, how can I be more involved in serving in Lakes Free? But there are also many in this crowd this morning who serve tirelessly, who serve, who serve week in, week out, who are involved in multiple ministries in this church, who are, who are committed. And to you, I say, good job. Good job, well done. Well done, good and faithful servants, right? Continue to remember the purpose for which you serve. Continue to remember, because it's easy to get worn out in the midst of that. Remember that you are serving the, something that is far greater You are working for an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. Serving together secures our unity. The second type of unity that Paul calls us to as gospel citizens is a unity against inside opposition. We've been looking at external opposition, but there's also internal opposition. Paul switches gears here um, so, that, so, so that we begin focusing on the internal factors that can play a role in ripping a community apart. Paul begins with the assumption here in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, the logic here is that since you enjoyed Since you enjoy each of these four things, the encouragement with Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, if you've enjoyed these things, then you are already in a relationship with Christ. You are a gospel citizen. You are somebody who has already been affected by the gospel. So if you're a gospel citizen, right, because that's really what these things all point to, then make my joy complete. If you have tasted of the gospel, then make my joy complete. How is it that we would make Paul's joy complete? Paul lays out two ways for the Philippians to make his joy complete. The first is that we would be united against sin. So previously we've been looking at uh, we, we've been looking at the the um, the temptation to divide over external threats, but now now this is even more pernicious. We get to we get to the internal threats that, that try to rip our community apart. First, the negative. We should be united against this sin. Verse 3a, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, right? Verse 4a, let each look not only to his own, look not only to his own interests. At the center of this sin is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition and conceit, looking only to their own self-interests. Their own selfishness is causing rifts in their community that will only continue to grow. And the selfishness is described as prioritizing themselves and their own interests over that of others, choosing to make sure their interests are met. This sort of selfishness grows ultimately out of a heart of pride. And what ultimately is at the center of pride? An I, right? I, I is at the center of pride. C.S. Lewis describes pride this way. He describes it as a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. It's concentration or self-absorption upon, upon yourself and your own needs. And it seeks out its own best and its own self-interest despite that of others. 
That's, that's what Paul means by pride here. That's what Paul is describing. That's what's ripping this community apart. The second thing, the second thing Paul calls them to is positive. It's being united and serving together. It's being united and serving together. Paul writes in verse 2b, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. Verse 3, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then in verse 4, but also to be into, um, but also to the interests of others. So at the core of these descriptions ultimately is humility, humility. Paul wants humility to be front and center in everything that the Philippians do. Now, this is key for our understanding of humility because often people misinterpret it. It's a word that commonly gets thrown around, but people don't use it well within the church. When he says, when he says humility, he's not thinking, he's not encouraging you to think less of yourself. Rather, he's encouraging to think of yourself less, right? It's not less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Crucial to the heart of humility is serving and taking care of the needs of other and looking outside of yourself. That's what it means to count others as more significant than yourself. It's taking care of the interests of others. Humility is at the heart of knowing and enjoying God. And it springs from the gospel that is at work within you. Humility unites believers together against internal strife and warring. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis again said that if you ever met a humble person, if you ever met a humble person, you wouldn't walk away thinking immediately, wow, that person's incredibly humble. You wouldn't be overwhelmed by, by, by how austere and how humble they seemed. Rather, you would be overwhelmed at how much they thought of you, right? How, how little they thought of themselves and how interested they were in who you were and your needs and making sure you were taken care of. That's, that, that's the mark of humility. Not being fixated by self, being focused on others. It's a concern for others, not a focus for not a focus on our own needs, or even or even, frankly, on our deficits. Even a focus on our own deficits is also pride, because again, it's a return to concentration on self, on me and mine. Pastor Jason mentioned last week about the church in Cottage Grove that is planning a, a temporary closure, um, a planning a temporary closure and then a relaunch again. I, I think it's in the fall. Um, and, and with that relaunch, with that relaunch, has apparently asked the older, the older um, congregants that are part of their congregation to not return. Now, I, I've seen things about it on the news, and I, I don't always trust everything that the news has to say. There's always two sides to every story. But assuming, assuming the accuracy of those reports, uh, the desire of the church then would be to, to see their older congregants leave to make room and to encourage the growth with newer, younger families, Right? That's exactly what we see being described here. This is what we are to not be about. Right? This is, that's a fixation on their own self and their own interests and their own needs and their own wants as opposed to, as opposed to a fixation on how can we serve others? How can we take care of those who are here? How can we, how can we be a community rather that's united? Right? They're, they're actually dividing in an effort to do more ministry. But that's the opposite of what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to be united together for more gospel effective work. It goes against the grain of the very calling of the church. And this is a certain, and this is certainly a danger in any ministry, right? 
where we begin to focus more on our own interests and our own, and our own selves rather than the needs of those around us. Where all of a sudden Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning or, or ABFs or your small groups or Wednesday nights becomes more about me and my enjoyment and my connection and my, 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 right? Is that, is that really what this is all about? Is it really all about me? Or is it about going to these things, going to Sunday morning, going to ABF, going to small group, going to these various things and looking to meet the needs of others? That's the difference between pride and humility. Are we here for us or are we here for others and to make sure they're taken care of? It's amazing how much things change when we come prepared to serve and to look for the needs of others. And I often wonder how many people are here currently who are only one Sunday away from leaving because they haven't genuinely, they haven't genuinely been sought out by our community, right? Maybe they were warmly welcomed at the door. Maybe people said hi to them. And so, so everyone was, was nice, but at the same time, no one's actually reached out to them in any kind of meaningful way. That, that's what it means to be looking to the needs of others and to be serving others. Serving each other, serving each other secures unity. Paul is urging us to pursue unity, to be a gospel people united against both external and internal threats. Right? He wants us to be united in the face of both those things. The problem is, is that the world is searching for unity too. They also long for it. It's not just knit into the heart of Christians, but it's the desire that's knit into us all. And so the world devises different schemes, different ways to try to bring unity through institutions like government and through, and through the arts and through sports. But none of those things can bring genuine unity because they don't deal with the thing that actually divides us. They don't deal with the things that actually tear us apart. They don't deal with sin. Sin is at the heart of it all. It's not politics. It's not faith. It's not race. It's not age. It's not economics. It's not education. It's not vocation. It's sin that ultimately divides us. That's what we see when we look back at Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they sinned. They ate of the fruit they were told not to eat. And what's their immediate ramification? What's the immediate response? Already you see division between them and God as they hide from him in the garden. And then quickly thereafter, you see division between man and woman as they begin blaming each other over whose fault it actually was. Sin divides us. So then there is only one solution and nothing else will do. Christ. He is the only way. He is the only solution. He who came to take away the sins of the world. Just as Paul pointed out in our passage, service is necessary for unity. Well, ultimately, we need a servant to bring ultimate unity. He united his people with the Father and then made his people one. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 28. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God. See that? We've been united with God. We are all sons. We've been welcomed into the family through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, uh, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus brings the unity that we long for. This is what brings us together across time and across space and across language barriers and across cultural divides. It's Christ. 
And this is only possible because of the work that he has accomplished, because it is so complete, because it is so effective that it is able to bring together things that nothing else could. This is only possible because of him. And that's what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 1, where it said, where it said, if, right, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, right? If the gospel is at work in you, it can bring the unity that we long for. The gospel is the foundation for true unity. We can enjoy unity because Christ is greater and better than the things that divide us. We can enjoy unity because Christ is greater and better than troubles that assail us. We can enjoy unity because Christ is better and greater than the sins that plague us. Unity is essential for gospel work. And unity is only possible because of the gospel work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, again, I just I thank you for your word. I pray that we would be a united people. God, a people who stand together, united by the work of your son. Lord, a people who are faithful to take your message out to the ends of the earth. Father, I pray that you would continue to work your word into our hearts and transform us. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. This morning, I want to close with a benediction from the book of Jude. If you'd please stand. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good Sunday.